0: MI5 and MI6, the intelligence agencies that protect the country from threats at home and abroad, have always been cloaked in mystery. The government didn't even confirm that MI6, or the Secret Intelligence Service, existed until 1994. So it's extremely rare, outside of fiction, to get a glimpse of how they operate. Until you hear a story like this.
1: There's a sort of filmic caricature of what a spy looks and sounds like. They may not be averse to martinis and sitting in airport lounges wearing aviators. And and then there's the reality of it.
0: That reality is murkier. Today's story, which involves scenes of extreme violence that might not be suitable for all listeners only came to light because of the death of a child. It raises serious questions about how MI5 and MI6 treat their intelligence assets, the people they recruit, and the risks they ask them and their families to take on behalf of the country.
1: It's such a crazy world to report on. I mean, you are in a hall of mirrors where you know that literally every person involved was trained in lies, deceit and deception.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, an MI6 agent's journey from spy to killer.
1: My name's Gabriel Pogrind. I'm the Whitehall editor at The Sunday Times.
0: And Gabriel, your latest story, this astonishing investigation you've done, just give us a sense for you why this story is so significant.
1: So at its heart, this is the story of the tragic and unnecessary torture and subsequent death of a British child. But it's also about so much more It's about Britain's response to the war on terror, its complicated relationship with its Muslim communities, the way that we think about mental health, and possibly above all the culture and conduct of MI5 and 6, these institutions sealed off from scrutiny and granted extraordinary powers in principle to protect the British public from harm.
0: The character at the centre of this story is somebody we're calling Abdi, and we should just say right at the start that all names are being changed. Just give us a sense of who Abdi is.
1: We often think about the people recruited by MI5 and 6 as Cambridge grads who studied Russian and English and got a tap on the shoulder, but this guy is very different. I mean, the reality of it is that the people that are useful to these agencies are often people that are pretty complicated. He was born and raised in England to Pakistani parents who'd moved to Britain in the 70s, one of a large group of siblings, was perfectly proud of being Muslim, but wasn't devoutly religious, certainly saw himself as being English first and foremost. He studied at a normal school. But then there were some dark undercurrents to his youth that I think possibly, when one reflects on a life, shaped him and changed him. And He said that he was abused by a paedophile in his community. And I mean, it was only many, many years later that he told anybody, but he blamed himself at the time, as well as being severely physically abused by one of his parents. His mother beat him with Her hands and with sticks. And the result of that was that in his late teens, he had a breakdown and told a medical professional it felt as though his head was going to explode and he was put on medication. And I think his life from that point on was set on a course of instability. He obtained a criminal record in his early 20s for trying to use a stolen credit card, received five separate convictions for what he did. He had very few friends. Actually, the services themselves observed that he basically didn't have any any kind of meaningful relationships.
0: And for Abdi, his life just gets more complicated, particularly after he gets married. Just talk us through that. Take us through the circumstances of his wedding.
1: So Abdi, in his mid-twenties, ended into an arranged marriage overseen by his parents and his wife's family. We're calling the woman he married Aisha. She was was actually a child at the time, I think around the age of 16 or 17. Wow. And they got married in a remote province in Pakistan on the foothills of the Himalayas. While he's out there getting married, he sees things which convince him that members, plural, of his extended family are connected to the Taliban. These relatives ended up taking Abdi to a jihadi camp this by the way was you know in in a kind of really geopolitically turbulent period the taliban had ruled afghanistan for a number of years but had been displaced from power by america which accused the taliban of giving al-qaeda safe harbor after 9-11 Abdi recounted going to this camp and seeing all these machine guns, rocket launchers, he said they despised Britain, despised America. And I think he sort of witnessed a hatred that was visceral. And for a guy that had grown up as a proud Englishman, that was quite a shocking experience.
0: So what does he do?
1: She goes back to Britain. Abdi meets one of the people who he'd seen at this training camp. Hmm. And that person was now living back in Blighty. I can't identify the particular target of this, but this associate of Abdi's reveals that he would like to kill a VIP, a very well-known person in the UK. So Abdi makes a decision that completely changes his life, although he wouldn't have known it at the time. But he anonymously contacted anti-terrorism police. He gave them details of what he'd heard, what he'd seen. And before long, he was meeting a member of the special branch, that's the Scotland Yard Anti-Terrorism Division, at a hotel near his home. He passed over the passport details of the man who'd expressed this murderous desire but over time, they managed to get him to talk about much else.
0: Tell us a bit about that relationship.
1: From an early stage, you know, his interlocutors at Special Branch would have recognised that he posed a potential usefulness to them far beyond this specific incident alone. Though we can't put a fine point on the chronology, we can say that at the time, you know, the British state was. Rightly, deeply fearful of a 9-11-style attack on British soil. But MI5's penetration within British Muslim communities was so minimalistic that they basically just had no way of getting into the mosques and madrasas, which all of a sudden posed the next big threat to Britain. One MI5 agent has since said that they considered blacking up the staff they did have,
0: I mean, that sounds like it would have gone catastrophically wrong, but suddenly here they are presented with a patriotic British Pakistani man who's come to them with valuable information. Presumably, they jump on this as an opportunity.
1: They do. And I mean, the information we have suggests that Abdi was reluctant at first, but in due course agreed to travel to cities posing as a worshipper and spying on on mosques, which had been earmarked as at risk of Islamism. And they also tasked him with undercover, once again, gathering intelligence on groups with potential ties to Al-Qaeda. And it was after a period of doing that, that Abdi was introduced to a man codenamed James, who said he was from MI5. So...
0: This is now the security services contacting him. Presumably, I mean, is this a recruitment thing? Do they want him to be an agent?
1: That's exactly right. MI5 approached him. He agrees to do bits and bobs for them. They start actually giving him envelopes of cash, starting at 500 quid a month and steadily growing in value. I mean, the people around Apdi were bewildered by the money he was suddenly receiving. People thought he might even be a fraudster, but he Basically, was um, taking cash handouts to get on the inside of groups which were keeping police and MI5 up at night.
0: Yeah, and having having done that, having helped MI5 try and find potential threats here around the country, suddenly things shift a gear again. Tell us what what happened.
1: He'd proven himself. And at some point, MI5 and 6 they must have had a word with each other, and MI6 suddenly steps forward and asks Abdi if he might be prepared to do some work overseas. Their core objective was for him to infiltrate Waziristan, this kind of mountainous area between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The West believed that this area was where Osama bin Laden might have been hiding, and it was used as a staging ground by al-Qaeda to wage terror in the region and elsewhere. And they essentially wanted to see if Abdi could get on the inside and give them information about what these people were plotting.
0: And at this stage, you know, as you said... They know that he doesn't have many friends. Do they know about the sort of traumas he's had? I mean, is there any kind of psychological assessment before he's sent out somewhere as dangerous as Waziristan?
1: The answer to that is yes. I mean, MI6 were more than aware of his psychological profile. I mean, the sort of work that we're talking about is so extreme. You're you're likely to witness beheadings may become involved in acts of murder or certainly witness them yourself. This is not the sort of thing that your average person is going to be cut out to do. And MI6, before deploying ABDI, did their own vetting exercise. They basically made him take two different tests. One was called a neuroticism, extroversion and openness assessment, and the other was a trauma antecedents questionnaire. The psychologist who undertook this assessment subsequently wrote, on emotional instability, he, Abdi, scored as high as it is possible to score. I have not seen this score on any NEO test I have given. And this psychologist continued by observing that in certain traits, Abdi had more in common with a psychotic person than an average member of the population.
0: And yet they do continue with the idea of the mission. What sort of training does he get? to be able to cope with what he's about to see.
1: So notwithstanding these pretty troubling results, they proceed to send Abdi to a secret UK military base, which kind of masqueraded as a mock jihadi camp. I can't say exactly where it was, but it was in a Muslim-majority country, which is allied to Britain. And it, it was run by special forces and was so... Shockingly realistic, Abdi said it was unbelievable. He learned to drive a 4x4, was taught how to assemble a Kalashnikov, how to become friends with people he hadn't met, how to fade into the background. He was given lessons on martial arts. I mean, essentially, a bit of a survival course for the conditions he was likely to encounter in Waziristan.
0: And part of this is almost a test, I suppose, to see if he's ready.
1: That's right, and I mean, there are more tests to come. And he actually um, reluctantly agrees to the idea of being deployed and beforehand goes for a long walk in the English countryside with one of his handlers. And I, I think the word I would use to describe it, based on the information I have, is that it was a pretty tender occasion. I mean, this handler told Abdi what was about to happen would change his life forever. And that they were immensely grateful for everything he'd agreed to do. And, and as they were ambling across these chalky hills out of nowhere, a group of men wearing balaclavas ambushed Abdi, tied him up, and hurled him into the back of a van, which was a simulated kidnapping exercise. And they were screaming at Abdi. You know, who was he working for? They were kicking him, screaming at him. They had a chainsaw, which they were revving right up in. His face as though they were going to oh, cut God. his flesh with it. Um, That's and, and, and seeing how he would react. And it was after he had not divulged the relevant information that these men in has took their face coverings off, congratulated him. His hand walked into the shipping container where he's been taken, and they basically say to him, Well done, you've passed the test, uh, you're, you're ready.
0: It's time to go to Waziristan. Exactly. Coming up, Abdi faces his most dangerous mission yet, one which would follow him home. That's in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: To find out if it's right for you,
0: so Gabriel, the man we're calling Abdi, is sent to Waziristan on what sounds like an incredibly difficult mission, despite all the concerns about his psychological state. What exactly is his task when he gets there? What does he end up seeing and doing?
1: He's essentially sent to infiltrate a jihadi camp with links to the Taliban as well as al-Qaeda and collect potentially valuable information. I mean, the central task involved basically posing as a jihadi foot soldier, Hmm. a young, impressionable British jihadi. Over a series of weeks-long deployments, he was kind of going back and forth. He builds more and more trust with, the members of the Taliban running this training camp. And over time, they give him some both important and horrific tasks to do. Abdi said that his main task was washing and burying the disfigured bodies of Taliban soldiers who'd been killed by drone attacks and Pakistani army soldiers he was taking these bodies riddled with bullets and damaged in inconceivable ways i mean he said that he buried 60 people in total and then there was this one experience i don't know what state he was in before it happened but this next experience basically broke him what happened Abdi was obviously totally fearful at all times of being outed as a spy and or killed by a drone. Mortality probably hovered over everything he did yeah. every thought he had. And there's a day where the local imam rounds up the village and presents a family who he has accused of being American spies. And they were beheaded one by one. So there was a father, a mother and a young child and a executioner literally decapitated them in front of the village. Even the child. So, I mean, the detail which obviously affected Abdi was um, he was asked to take the head of this child and handle the head or hold up this head and present it to the gathering crowds as a warning of what would happen to those who betrayed the Taliban.
0: I mean, that's just so harrowing, particularly when, you know, you know you are a spy and you're watching other people being beheaded for the thing that you could be found out for any moment. It's hard to see how somebody wouldn't be profoundly affected by an experience like that. And yet, you know, as a spy, while he's there, is he able to do his job is he able to provide intelligence back to mi6 in london how is that part of his mission going
1: so i suspect we'll never know exactly how useful or not a spy he was abdi later said that while he was in pakistan he foiled a plot to attack the french embassy in pakistan i mean that that i think is a pretty concrete example of what is said to be the role that Abdi played in preventing damage being done to Britain and its allies. But we do know that after his first series of deployments in Bazaristan, he did return to Britain for a debrief and a psychological assessment. And um, it seems that whoever was seeing him, they obviously dealt with superlatives a fair amount. I've told you about him having the highest level of emotional instability it was possible to score when he came back they said that he also had the highest stress rating the person assessing him had ever seen and in terms of his utility to them i mean they said that he was so withdrawn so confused so incoherent couldn't really even communicate fluently it seems that it was very difficult to attach much value to anything he said or verify anything he said
0: From what you say, he comes back a shell of a man. When he does return, what sort of impact does that have on his family life? Tell us a bit about that.
1: I mean, one um, detail which um, actually predates his MI6 deployment is... While working for MI5, Abdi's wife had been sent to a shelter for domestic violence victims. And it was only after he profusely apologised and said things would change that she returned to him. But after Abdi returned from Aziristan, things got progressively worse. I mean, MI5 and 6 appeared to recognised that he was in a bad way. They appear to have made made available a psychologist who he saw for a handful of appointments. I don't believe he was hospitalised. I think he essentially had a bit of contact with a counsellor, um, who he subsequently said told him um, that they weren't able, uh, you know, weren't weren't capable of dealing with the uh, extreme trauma that he'd endured. They sent him on a free holiday, but the account we have is that that holiday, was with his wife and was a bit of a disaster, they fought, and they became progressively estranged.
0: And by this time, Abdi is also a father.
1: Abdi and Aisha, despite their estrangement, do have a child who we're going to call Noor. Part of what Abdi later characterised as his trauma was he couldn't really be around the cries of children. And there were times where Abdi later said he would have these vivid nightmares going back to what happened in Waziristan and wake up realising that he had hit Noor and he'd become incredibly and uncontrollably angry. After his return from Waziristan, Aisha noticed that Noor exhibits injuries which appear to be what we would call non-accidental and not self-inflicted either.
0: And does anybody know that this is happening? Does anybody realise that this child is being injured?
1: There's a question of whether anybody realised this was happening. We have seen evidence showing that Abdi took Noor on one occasion to a hospital run by the NHS and Noor was given an x-ray and the scan showed that the damage to the child's body went further than the injury that superficially nor had been taken to hospital to have treated. The NHS staff failed to inquire further in in any way and I mean it actually ended up being Abdi's wife Aisha who tried to blow the whistle. We we know that nothing happened as a result of that and uh, nothing happened as a result of what she did days later which was called the hotline of the social services of, of, of the local authority in which Abdi and Noor were living. And the social services took notes of what happened. They were aware of the allegations being made. And again, nothing was done. No emergency visit was made. And what happened next was Abdi called 999 and paramedics discovered Nor was covered in injuries from head to toe. And there was a police officer who said that the injuries they witnessed were the worst that they had ever seen. And Abdi, should be said, appeared pretty disengaged with what was going on, pretty um, unaware. Nor was taken to hospital where doctors vainly attempted to resuscitate the child. And when doctors mentioned to Abdi that they were going to stop, that Nor was dead, Abdi said a single word he said fine not that long later in fact about 90 minutes later he was arrested on suspicion of murder
0: it's just awful to think this child's mother tried to warn the authorities and yet the child ends up dead when abdi is arrested it goes to trial what do we know about what happens at
1: trial well i didn't say very much that was true um, and he didn't say very much, which suggested that he'd understood what had happened. Um, he was um, did totally deny that he killed uh, his child, said that he loved Noor, and even spoke about Noor in the present tense.
0: So do the judge and his lawyers, do they find out about his past?
1: This is a really great question. And, I mean, candidly, we don't know exactly when, it is informally or formally confirmed that he was a spy. I mean, it sort of seems that this was partially held in secret, but the court says that they've lost their entire file on this case, and we can't tell you why. Uh, we are unable to provide a reason, was the wording they used.
0: That's just bizarre.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, you know, you might think it's bizarre. You might, you know, others will uh, naturally draw a more sinister conclusion. I don't really know what I think, but I think it is, Yes. I think bizarre is probably a good word for it. What I've established is that a few days before his trial for murder, Abdi received an envelope out of the blue, and it was written by somebody identified only by a codename series of digits. And this person said, on behalf of MI5-6 and Counterterrorism Police, you, Abdi, are released from the Official Secrets Act for the purpose of your defence.
0: What was his defence? What was the case they were putting forward?
1: Abdi's defence was that he admitted killing his child. That, in due course, was something that he came to terms with and accepted. But, I mean, essentially in the grip of a psychotic breakdown at the time and said for that reason that he should be given a, a lesser sentence. Essentially, what Abdi was asking the jury to consider but also what the judge was asking to consider was what was this man's state of mind at the time of the killing of his child and naturally that's a pretty difficult thing to determine and it's made even more complicated by the fact that mi5 and 6 were able to withhold stuff which they felt might compromise national security we don't know what we don't know so we we don't know what the jury in the trial and the court weren't able to look at in terms of internal assessments about his mental health. The court, for what it's worth, accepted as fact that Abdi was profoundly damaged and traumatized, and indeed mentally unwell. Mm. But the position the jury reached was that he was not unwell enough to explain what had happened, and that he could have, should have stopped himself from harming his child, you know, even though he was obviously distressed. And so he was convicted of murder and given a life sentence which she continues to serve but one thing that i've seen and which was not made available to anybody at the time is actually two reports one dated shortly after abdi's deployment and then the other produced only weeks before the killing of noor and they are from a pakistani clinic in which it appears abdi checked himself into and in that clinic the doctors there Appeared to have diagnosed Abdi with schizophrenia and psychosis, and said that he wow. was incapable of completing day-to-day tasks or taking care of himself; that he was a risk to others and indeed himself. That information's only surfaced or resurfaced, perhaps more accurately, recently. But that those in whose hands Abdi's fate lay at the time when were not in receipt of the, these details or these reports.
0: Well, so it wasn't even considered when he was convicted. When Abdi ends up behind bars, what do MI5 and MI6 say? What's their reaction to all of this? You know, we have heard them recently talk about wanting to be more open with the public than they have been in the past. How did they talk about this case?
1: You're quite right, Manveen. And it was because of that that I wrote to the heads of both agencies and asked them for their thoughts on what happened. And after a bit of back and forth, I got the absolutely illuminating words. In fact, they didn't even respond. It was the Foreign Office said, in line with our longstanding principle, the government does not confirm or deny allegations, assertions, or speculation about the activities of UK intelligence agencies. And that was that.
0: That's all. So, Gabriel, after Abdi is found guilty, the government does actually launch an internal inquiry. Tell us what you know about that.
1: The answer is I I know a little bit about what I don't know, which is any of the findings uh, or conclusions that it reached. Through some pretty uh, diligent and frustrating work under the Freedom of Information Act, I've just about been able to obtain the dates that... Report was submitted, and its length is forty-two thousand words, seventy-four pages long. But under a series of ever-changing legal exemptions, the government is refusing to produce it. So, I mean, ordinarily, when a child dies, there is accountability, in in no small part, to ensure that lessons are learned and that the same thing can't happen again. This probably more than more, or at least as much as any other child murder needs proper lessons to be learned at the top of government but also on a local level given what happened at hospital with social services so i mean forget me knowing i mean what about local authorities what about hospitals and all the rest of it but um the key detail is whatever useful information is contained in this report we're not going to see anytime soon
0: and for abdi now how is he what's happened to him
1: I mean, Abdi, um, still, still in prison. You know, living in this most extraordinary um, existence. O- obviously, uh, can't tell anybody what's happened to him, and he's done a lot of work on his mental health and coping with the guilt and shame. I can't provide much for window into his soul, but I have seen a note that he recently wrote to his child, and it said, "Nor I wish you can forgive me." I will never forgive myself for what happened. Now you're in a safe place. May God grant you the highest heaven. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of what he's up to. I mean, he believes that the murder conviction against him is wrong and that it constituted a miscarriage of justice. He wants to appeal his case. Whether or not he'll do that, we don't know. He has been given. I mean, you did actually ask about the response of the services, and though they won't say anything to us, read whatever you will into the fact that Not long ago, they did pay him tens of thousands of pounds in compensation as a recognition both of back pay but also as sort of compensation for the mental strife he suffered in the field.
0: And Gabriel, I mean, this is a world we very rarely see anything of. You know, I think there's always an understanding that the things that are being done in our name to try to protect us, are probably quite murky. We just very rarely get to see it. And now it's taken the murder of a child, really, to lift the lid and show us a bit about what really goes on, you know, how intelligence is gathered, how we're protected by the security services. It's quite a lot to take in. For you, what are the big lessons from everything that you've learned? What are you taking away from it?
1: I mean, it is hard to make total or confident moral judgments about these things. But one question I've asked rhetorically, sort of to myself, is if the words the most emotionally unstable person is possible to encounter did not prompt pause or did not result in them saying, maybe this chap isn't the right kind of guy to go to Aziristan. I mean, literally, what could? I mean, because it's not like they said, he's reasonably unstable. They basically said that he was the victim of child abuse. By the time they conducted their assessment, they knew that he'd perpetrated abuse against his own wife and had a breakdown. It is hard. It is hard to understand how that could have not been met with okay, well, this guy's just not right for that work. Mm. Albeit, perhaps, it also illustrates you know, the very fact that they did proceed with deploying him might be the most forceful and uh, you know, vivid illustration possible of just how desperate they were at the time. I can only imagine that that resulted in people taking risks, and uh, I, I suppose this is a very rare story of what happens sometimes when you take those risks. To this day, there's no mechanism to force them to reckon with what happened with Abdi, and I I can't imagine there will be any time soon.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest... The Sunday Times Whitehall editor, Gabriel Pogrand. If you're a subscriber, you can find all of Gabriel's investigations at thetimes.co.uk. The producers today were James Shield and Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.